0: Hello, welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for the day. We thank You for Your grace and Your truth, we thank You for Your mercy poured out on the cross. As we begin the remembrance of Passion Week, as we walk through these days, Lord, I want to devote my heart to You. We want to devote our hearts to You in this place now, and ask that You would carry us throughout the week, Lord, remembering day by day all that You have done on our behalf to buy our ransom, and we thank You for that. Father, help me to rightly divide Your Word today and speak the truth. Help me not to lead anyone astray. God, I'm so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful, God, that we can gather here. I love these people. And I ask, God, that You would continue to uh, mold and shape our hearts by the power of Your Spirit which resides within. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin today in Matthew 21, if you want to find Matthew 21. And actually going to... Bible hop a little bit. It's not our normal routine where we would go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We, uh, we're, what we are is we're camped on a particular verse that we started last week. You see it up on the TV screen this morning. John 14.6, a pivotal verse to our faith. And so we are in the process of dissecting that, pulling it apart. Last week we talked about um, well, just reading the verse as as it is on the screen, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. An exclusive statement Jesus makes. Uh, it's a It's a one-way type of thing, and that's what we spent the majority of last week discussing is how Jesus is the way. We went back and we read Isaiah chapter 53 and how it said that He, being our Savior, bore the iniquity of us all. He carried it on His shoulders. Obviously, the sacrifice He made is what redeems us. It reconciles us to a pure, holy, righteous God. We in our sin cannot stand before that righteous God, for He can have no iniquity in His presence. To bring sin into his presence is to, is to tarnish his holiness. And so to bring imperfect into the presence of the perfect would make the perfect imperfect. And so Jesus becomes the way for us, the way into God's presence. This week we will look at, as we look at the scriptures of Palm Sunday, we will look at how Jesus is the truth. And that would of course leave next Sunday us discussing how Jesus is the life. So we're going to begin in Matthew 21, and what we're going to do, I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table. It's not about me trying to stun anyone with my oration skills or anything like that. Just to get it all out, we're going to look at all four Gospel accounts of the triumphal entry. And we're going to look at them just step by step. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin in Matthew. We'll go to Mark, Luke, and then John. Okay, so Matthew 21, are you there? starting with verse 1 Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives Jesus then Jesus sent two disciples doesn't tell us who they are saying to them go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her loose them and bring them to me And if anyone has if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So that's the story, one we're probably familiar with, if you've gone through a Palm Sunday or two in your life I've been through them now every year, pretty much since my birth. I've heard this story, and one we're familiar with. Jesus sends for the colt. He rides upon the colt, riding into Jerusalem. It's called the Triumphal Entry, one week now before his death, before his death, burial and resurrection. And he is in the process of fulfilling prophecy as he does these things. It talks about going to get a a, a colt so that he could fulfill what was said. It said back in verse 4, spoken of the prophet saying, and and then the quote, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. That's a quote of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9. It says the exact same thing. Hundreds of years before Jesus made this trip, it was prophesied, spoken, that he would ride in on a donkey. Now, oftentimes, I found this interesting as I was studying, we see in our mind's eye, Jesus coming in on the colt, uh, you know, sitting upon some clothes. And, and and the question is, why wasn't he coming in riding on this magnificent stag? If this was truly the triumphal entry, why is he not on some grand horse? And the answer would be, well, because he had to pr- fulfill prophecy. He had to ride in on the donkey. And so we think of that and we go, well, that's that's not as cool as riding on a horse, is it? He's riding in on a donkey. What what is the significance of that? And we we take that word "lowly" and we associate it with the donkey to say, well, he's riding in as a humble servant or a humble person. And and this is is to some degree that is true. You would think that as a king rode in, he would ride in on this magnificent horse, but that wasn't always the case. Oftentimes. As a king rode into a town he would ride in on a colt to signify that he was coming in peace. Had he rode in on a a stag or a large horse or you know a steed or I don't know Michelle would know the right terms I don't I'm not a horse person stallion that would signify that he was coming with judgment and that's not what he was doing at the time was he? He was coming to make peace. We talked about that on Wednesday night how he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? It's bringing peace between two warring parties. Do we have we viewed ourselves as that do we, as as sinners and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are at war with a just God. And through the sacrifice through Jesus being the way he reconciles us he brings two warring parties together and so this there is significance to him coming and riding on a colt it's signifying that he's coming to ride or riding in peace it's i love the story he sends two disciples and dave always likened it to uh you know two guys going into town and you know your chevy 1500 is sitting there in the in the driveway and you walk up to them and you go hey um need to borrow the truck the lord has need of it <laughs> and that's what they do they go to this colt owner and and they say hey the lord has need of it and the the people are like okay How would that fly today? (laughs) Hey, uh, you know, you see it in the movies all the time, right? The cop comes up to the car. Hey, get out of the car. I need it for the chase, right? And the guy's like, what? And then the guy, the cop or whoever it is, usually has to flash a gun and say, I need your car. The guy gets out and then he uses the car. This would be us walking up to the guy washing his 1500 or whatever it is and saying, hey, uh, the Lord has need of your truck. Yeah, right. Get out of here, buddy. But, but the, (laughs) exactly the Lord, the Lord pave the way, knowing that this was going to happen. I read a tweet yesterday, and it, it said, you know, we don't, it said, uh, how is it worded? Um, no, it won't work if you go up and ask for the keys of the Lamborghini, <laughs> you know, something along those lines, the Lord has need of your Lamborghini today, <laughs> but he, the the colt, the donkey, that was their, their mode of transportation in those days, obviously the pack animal, and so, uh, but Rather, And I read a commentary that said maybe this was prearranged, that Jesus had gone to this family beforehand to say there may be a day coming when we need to use this. Whether that happened or not, I don't know. Either way, the, the, the cult owner, his heart was open to say, okay, the, the Lord has need of it, the Lord may have it, and that is a great attitude for you and I to have with all of our possessions to say, should the Lord need it, He has it hold loosely to the things of this world, they all end up in the junkyard anyway. That's <laughs> true. And so they, they set him on the colt and then a great multitude spreads their clothes out as he's riding into Jerusalem, lay their coats down, a, a, a symbol of, of, of laying their lives before the king. Some of them cut down palm branches and they began to shout or sing this song and it wasn't any... It wasn't just a random song; it was a specific song, a psalm, if you would, from Psalm one eighteen, part of the Hallel, part of what they would sing as they were on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That's where everybody's headed, and the, the the line is, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna!" The word what we celebrate today is it means God save us, and so they're crying out to Jesus. Hosanna, save us. You are the one that has come to save us. They're laying down their palm branches. They're laying down their coats as a significant um, gesture to say, we give our lives to you. Now, what we need to talk about before we, we continue on is, and, and I'm not going to do this each time we read through just the first time, but what they were expecting, I believe as Jesus rode in, was that they were expecting him to come and to rule and to reign as their king. They were under the oppression of the Romans. And they were looking for a deliverance for their nation. And they believed that Jesus was that deliverance. And the way we know that is because they were cutting down palm branches and laying them down. That, and we talked about this when we read through this just a few weeks ago in John chapter 12, how that was a, a leftover from the Maccabean age when um, they were under the oppression, when, when Israel was under the oppression of the Syrians. And the Syrians were so evil that they went in and they desecrated the temple, uh, they slaughtered a pig there in the temple and they and they were worshiping uh, false gods within the temple of God. And finally, the Maccabean family said, enough is enough. We're going to rise up. We're going to rebel. And they delivered Israel from the hand of Syria. And the way that they celebrated that was they um, had this parade. And as the Maccabeans rode into town, they cut down palm branches and they laid them down and it was a symbol of of, of celebration. They continued every year to remember that celebration. They, in fact, had it, the palm branch put on their coins to remember that the Maccabeans had delivered them from the hand of Syria. And so now, as hundreds, hundreds of years later, as Jesus rides into town, they're thinking part two. The same thing's going to happen again. We're under the oppression now of Rome rather than Syria. And, and, and we need a deliverer and we expect Jesus to be that deliverer. Now, what's going to happen? Well, we know the story. As they're shouting, Hosanna now, come and save us. As the week goes on, they recognize this isn't the deliverer that we were hoping for. Jesus isn't the one that we were thinking was going to come and be our king. And so by Friday, they're shouting, crucify him. He's not who we want him to be. And what Jesus is saying through the whole thing is, guys, your vision for me is not big enough. I'm not merely to be a king. I'm to be the king of kings. If he had come just to be a political king or a national king, guess what? Eventually that would have ended. Right? As he he came to rule and reign, when he lost his life, if all he were to be was a national king, when he lost his life, somebody else would come and sit on the throne and he wouldn't truly be the Messiah. Isaiah would say he is to be our everlasting father our everlasting King, the King of kings, Lord of lords. And so to fulfill that, He has to be more than just a a national or a political King. He has to deliver us from more than just the oppression of Rome. He has to make the way to pay for sin. And so they shout, Hosanna. But by the end of the week, they'll be shouting, crucify Him. All right, go to the next book, Mark. Mark chapter 11. same story. We're going to begin with verse one. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way, and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, "'What are you doing loosing a colt?' And they spoke to them, just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the tree and spread them on the road." then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the father of our or sorry blessed is the kingdom of our father david that comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest very very similar isn't it now let's go to luke chapter 19 is there a point in us reading this four times i hope so i hope to draw a good conclusion toward the end not only that; it's good for us simple-minded folk to hear it four times. Luke chapter nineteen. I include myself in that. We're going to begin in verse twenty-nine this time. Luke nineteen twenty-nine. You there? And it came to pass when he drew near to Beth- Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount called Olivet that he sat. He sent two of his disciples, saying, "Go into the village opposite you." Whereas you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it, and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, the, um, so those who were sent went their way and found it just as they sa- he had said it to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? Why do you need my truck? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And he went, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest.'" And some of the Pharisees called to Him from the crowd, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.'" But He answered and said to them, "'I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out.'" And so perhaps just a little bit more information here in Luke that we hadn't received in Matthew and Mark. This interaction between the Pharisees, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.'" Why would they want Him to rebuke them? Because praise was being heaped upon Him as though He were God. "'Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord.'" And the and the Pharisees said, hey, we can't have that. That, They considered that blasphemy. Recall now what Jesus had done up in in His entire ministry up until this point. He said, now's not the time. Now's not the time. Now's not the time. When He is exalted as King by being set on the donkey, riding in triumphantly, now is the time. And we read that in John. The time had come. The wheels were in motion, and so he now receives that praise, and, and, and he even goes so far to say is, if these men and women were to keep silent, the very rocks, creation, would cry out." One more, and this is one we just read recently, John, let's go to John chapter 12, next book. John chapter 12 will begin in verse 12 this time. John's account not quite as detailed as the other three, but it is still in John. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him and cried out, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel.'" All four Gospel accounts quoting Isaiah or Psalm 8, 118. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified... That is, after he had risen and ascended, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. And we talked about how, uh, as as the disciples were now beginning the church, the Spirit came. When we read that in Acts chapter one, and through that they received this understanding of some of the events of Jesus' life. So why take the time to do this in the middle of a church service, read through Matthew, read through Mark, read through Luke and John, the same story over and over again? How is this going to help us to understand that Jesus is the truth? Think of it this way. If I were to place a, a, a picture up here and ask four people to draw it, from different perspectives. If I asked Steve over here to draw the picture from his angle, and Pete from the center, and Marianne from the back, and Michelle from this side, we would all get we would get four picture pictures of the picture. Maybe I should pick pick something other than a picture so I could talk about its picture. But it would all be of the picture, perhaps from different angles, from different perspectives. What's the point? All four are drawing the same thing. We have four different gospel accounts speaking of and something more than a stationary thing. If I said, let's draw this picture, but let's do it over the course of the next three years, even still, as we came into this stationary object, if we left it in this place three years from now, the picture would still look the same, roughly, as, as the, what is represented. This is an event that had taken place in time that is now over that four different men are writing about. Was it their intention, as they were writing, to make sure that it collaborated with the other three as they wrote this? No. As they were writing these letters, they had an audience that they were writing to. Matthew, for example, was writing to the Jewish people in an effort to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he had a very specific goal in mind to explain to these the, the Jewish people how Jesus is the Messiah. Luke was writing to those he calls uh, this man Theophilus, lover of God, and he is trying to have a logical understanding, uh, explanation of how Jesus is God. And so they're all reconstructing this event in, in their story, in their writings, and they come up with the same thing. Psalm 118 was quoted. It was fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. He rode in on a donkey. It's, it's very interesting. As we read scripturally about how truth is verified, what do we know? Truth is verified by two or three witnesses, right? That's what Scripture would tell us. Uh, just a couple examples. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, "...whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness." Deuteronomy chapter 19 uh, this is the law explaining um, how how a man is to be condemned one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established how about in Matthew? Jesus says it. But if he will not hear, Matthew chapter 18, if he will not hear, speaking of church discipline now, take with you one or two more, that, quote, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Paul talks about it to the Corinthian church in 13, 2 Corinthians 13. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. He tells it to Timothy, his young disciple. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The author of Hebrews says it as well. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. What does that tell us? God's way of not establishing not not saying this is the truth, but verifying what the truth is is by having two or three witnesses. And then in the Gospel accounts, we have even more than that. We have four witnesses. All four Gospel accounts explain the triumphal entry. That is, a, that is we can see that Jesus is the truth. We can verify that Jesus is the truth because of the account of the triumphal entry. It's interesting. They call the first three books, the first three Gospels, the synoptic Gospels. That means the the majority of them are the same, telling the same stories three different times over. And then John kind of ventures off and goes a different direction oftentimes. And so it's rare that all four Gospels would explain the events uh, or particular events. In fact, it only happens 11 times that an event in Jesus' life is mentioned by all four Gospels. You probably know what the majority of them are, but just to to talk about them, the baptism of John the Baptist. All four Gospels talk about the baptism of John the Baptist, the feeding of the 5,000. They talk about Peter's profession. Upon this rock you shall build uh, the church. Uh, The anointing by Mary, her breaking the jar. The triumphal entry, what we're talking about today. The Last Supper. Gethsemane, the garden, the trials, the crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And so five of the eleven are all, or sorry, six of the eleven are all within the last week of Jesus' life. Obviously an important week. And I've been trying to stress that as we go on to say this is the most important event in history. Jesus going to the cross. All of the Old Testament was waiting for this moment. All of the saints of the New Testament continually look back to this moment. We today, as we celebrate the Passion Week, look back to the sacrifice that Jesus made. He proclaims that He is the truth. And we can see, just by as an example today, looking at the triumphal entry, uh, four men accounting to different audiences the story of the triumphal entry that he is the truth. We live in a day and age where truth is under attack. Yeah. Where it's in question often, especially in higher education. I listened, I have listened to a guy often called, um, his name is Todd Friel. He has a, a program called Wretched Radio. It's in the, uh, it's a talk show uh, that he, he does online. But every Wednesday, he goes to different campuses. He's in Georgia. He goes to different campuses and he has what's called Witness Wednesday. And he just takes his tape recorder with him and he begins conversations with students there on the various campuses of Georgia. And what, as you listen to it time and time again, the, as he tries to present the truth of the gospel, what you hear more often than not, well, that's good for you, but that's not what I believe. That's good for you, but that's what not, not what I believe. And and Todd's point is, well, that's what the truth is. And he said, well, the, the, the comeback very often is, well, that's not truth to me. And what our, many of our professors in higher education are teaching these days is what's called relative truth, meaning if it's true to you, it's true, which is absolutely ridiculous. Truth has to be a constant or it's not the truth, right? We understand that. Does that make sense to all of us? Truth has to be the truth or it's not a constant. That's not what's taught these days. Truth is relative, and if it's true to you, then it's true. So you carry a red balloon with you there among, among the students of the campus, and you say, hey, I believe this balloon to be yellow. And those that believe in relative truth have no argument. Okay, if you believe it's yellow, it must be yellow to you. Doesn't this sound ridiculous? There, there, it makes absolutely no sense at all. We need truth in our lives we need the constant of truth so that we have a way to judge what is right and what is true and what is not right and what is not true jesus is the truth that's what he proclaimed he can't it can't be just strictly relative it doesn't work that way Going back to the psalm that they were quoting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. One of the other verses in that psalm, and this was a song that they would sing during the Passover week. Psalm 118 verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. Chris, what's your point? Open to me the gates of righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is right living. How do we know it's right? Because it's based on the truth. It's based on the truth. And so another way of saying that is, open to me the gates of truth living. And I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. Jesus says, John 14 6, back to the board, I am the way. We talked about how He was the is the way last week. I am the truth, I am the life. And then look what it says. And no one comes to the Father but except through me. We go through Jesus. Open to me the gates of righteousness truth and i will go through them and i will praise the lord the way we come to come to the father justly is by going through jesus the truth we said last week for someone to say that jesus isn't the way is to demean the sacrifice that he made on the cross and I say it again this week, for someone to say that Jesus is not the truth is to demean the sacrifice that He made on the cross. He is the truth. Think of it in the negative. If Jesus is not the truth, why are we here? We are wasting our time. Because if He's not what He proclaimed to be, Our faith is in vain. We have no hope. Like I said, this statement that he makes in John 14 is an exclusive statement. It either is or is not true. And if it is not true, if he is not the way, if he is not the truth, if he is not the life, we waste our time every Sunday morning. He is. He is. We can verify that. Just as one example today, looking at the four gospel accounts telling the same triumphal story, triumphal entry story. C.S. Lewis said it this way: You guys have heard this before. He's either a liar speaking of Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. That's the only conclusion we can come to Jesus as he makes an exclusive statement, like John fourteen six. He's not telling the truth. He's a liar. Again, why would we pursue Him then? He's crazy, and He, he has uh, uh, deity problems thinking that He is God, and in which case, again, why would we follow Him? Or, everything He says is true, and He is the Lord. I believe that to be true, and if that is the case, then He is worthy of our lives. Going back to the beginning of the study of John just to conclude today. In John chapter 1, familiar with this, the truth has always been in Jesus since the beginning. John one: "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God." And then verse 14, "...and the Word became flesh." and dwelt among us, speaking of Jesus, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, listen to this, full of grace and truth. That's our Savior. He's worthy of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. We thank You, Jesus that though the world would try to trip us up and say truth is a relative thing and what we believe is okay with us as as long as we don't try to impose our beliefs on others, we know that You are constant in the beginning from all time, eternity past. Jesus, You have been with the Father. You are God. You came and You dwelled among us. You lived sinlessly, full of grace, full of truth. You are worthy of our lives. We give you praise. Guide us through this week of passion. that we might glorify your name each and every day. Lord, I'm so grateful for these people. I pray a blessing over them, God, that through this week our hearts will be drawn unto you in adoration. For we love you, Lord. You're worthy of our praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.